If you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, and that text is printed in the bulletin, but if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open it and follow along. We're going to be reading today, starting in verse 10 through verse 16. So we need to stay in verses 10 and 11 for a little bit. We began to cover those verses last week, but there is more riches and goodness in those verses than we could get to in one week. So we will finish those and move into the next paragraph today as well. So verses 10 through 16. This is the word of God given to us as a gift to make us wise unto salvation. Let me ask you as we give our attention to God's word, would you join me if you're able and standing for the reading of his holy word today? Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Father, this is your word which is given by the inspiration of your spirit that we might be well-equipped for every good work. We ask now that your Spirit will cause us to open the ears of our hearts to hear what you say to us. We ask that you will be our teacher, and may we be faithful, obedient learners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to go back to verses 10 and 11, but let me draw your attention to one word in verse 12 as we begin. The most important word, perhaps, in this whole passage is in verse 12, where he says, uh, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I want to think on that word for a moment, the word because. Because if you miss that word, we'll get the whole idea of this passage twisted around. We'll miss his point. You see, what we have here is Paul is speaking quite zealously and quite eagerly, quite earnestly. We hear it in his voice. He's speaking very zealously of his desire to be like Christ. For by Christ's work in him to grow in holiness, to become like him in his death, to be conformed to his image, he's pressing on with great zeal. Why? Well, he tells us. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. All of this desire to excel in his conformity to Christ, all of this desire to know Christ and to be found in him, to be made like him, comes from the fact that at a very particular moment in his life, he could look back on, he could see it, he could remember it. At a moment, Jesus made him his own. At a moment in his life when we remember the story of of Saul, the persecutor. He had no desire to be Christ's. No desire to know Christ or be made like him. And yet Jesus appeared to him and made him his own. This 
is so vital to understanding how Paul approaches the Christian life. Because without it, we could read this section of chapter 3 where he's speaking so zealously. I press on, I press on, I'm forgetting what's behind, I'm straining towards what's ahead. I would like to be made like him, to know him, to share in his sufferings. This, this is an impressive level of commitment and desire and zeal to be like Christ. And without that, we could get this misunderstanding that it's all about what Paul does. That somehow he thinks his works for Christ are now going to earn him favor with God, and yet he guards us from that by telling us very clearly and very precisely what it is that drives him. What drives him to have this level of desire for holiness? This is it. It's because he knows the grace of God to him in Christ. It's exactly because of what God does for him in Christ that he has desire now to become like Christ. Isn't this amazing when we think about it? That, that here's the way you know if you have truly experienced and understood the grace of God in Christ. It's if your heart now has a new passion for holiness. You know you've experienced and understood rightly the grace of God in Christ if your heart now has a new passion for holiness. Now here's what's interesting. I see this at least three places in Philippians. At least three places. We could look back to chapter 2 where he says in, chat, in verses 12 and 11, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, he's pressing on and he's telling his people to press on. Work it out. Work out that salvation. And yet, we know this comes right after this great hymn to Christ in verses 5 through 11, this magnificent celebration of the redemptive work of Christ in his death and resurrection. And so there's no hint that in saying, work out your salvation, he's somehow telling them to earn or to curry their own favor with God through their deeds. It couldn't be. He's just given us this great celebration of Christ. And yet that leads him now to earnestly tell them, work out your salvation. We could see it again. Chapter 3, verse 10, which we read, where he says, here's his desire to know Christ, to be found in Christ, even to share in his sufferings that he might be conformed to the image of Christ. Where does he get that level of desire, that level of commitment? Well, he has just said that his great desire is to be found not having a righteousness of his own, but the righteousness of God that comes by faith. And having received that as a free gift, free righteousness, that drives him now to continue to pursue righteousness. And now we see it again here, where he's saying, verse 12, chapter 3, I press on. I press on. He tells us, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, I press on to make it my own. Why, Paul? Why do you press on with such zeal? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's almost this paradox that the more he exalts in the grace of Christ, the more he exalts in the fact that the righteousness from God is a free gift, something you cannot earn with your good deeds, freely given to those who have faith, the more he focuses on that, the more his heart is driven towards holiness. The more he celebrates the freedom of grace, the more he finds this passion welling up in his heart to live for Christ. See, it, it seems a little paradoxical at first that grace, something that's free, would drive you to strive for that, but that's the way that God's grace works. And so we're going to come back to that in a moment, but we, but we need to begin there. We need to begin with this word because in verse 12. 
Because that tells us this is what's driving him. This is why he has such desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, he explains that in two ways in these verses. How is he going to get to the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ? Two ways. First, what we see in verses 10 and 11 is that he's so eager for it, he's so zealous, he's even willing to share in the sufferings of Christ if it will lead him to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then we see in verses 12 through 16, his zeal causes him to say over and over that I press on, I press on, I work for it. So first, here's what's interesting. Paul, because the knowledge of God's grace, therefore he is willing to endure suffering if it means that he will be conformed to the image of Christ. Here's what we see in verse 10. His desire is to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to be found in him, to know Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's how we read verse 10, because the structure of that verse is important, and we need to understand the flow of this thought, because we can get a little tripped up. It's interesting. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What a strange order. First resurrection, then suffering, then death. It seems out of place, but here's what I think Paul is doing. Here's the desire. He he gives us, this is what the desire is, this is how to accomplish it. Here's the desire to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. That's the overarching desire that Paul has. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Here's how that gets accomplished. First, through sharing in his sufferings, and therefore becoming like him in his death, and therefore, verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the way to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is in the sort of a three-step move. First, to share in his sufferings, and through that, through the sharing in his sufferings, to be conformed to the image of his death. And therefore, having been united to Christ in his death, also to be united with him in his resurrection. So, That's how he's going to accomplish this great desire of knowing Christ. How is he going to know Christ? Well, first, by sharing in his sufferings. By sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? Because that's a little weird, isn't it? A little confusing to think that Paul, or even us, could somehow share in the sufferings of Christ. So we have to be clear, he does not mean that somehow he or we could share in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. We're not going to somehow, by our suffering, also have a share in his redemptive sufferings as though our sufferings were somehow atoning for our own sins. That, that's not what he means. That was the work of Christ and his alone. But what he's referring to here is the sufferings of the people of God that we go through for his sake. The sufferings of the Messiah are not necessarily those that the Messiah experiences, They're those that the people of God will go through for the sake of Christ, for his sake. And so in a sense, it's it's all the sufferings that Paul and the people of God will go through for the sake of Christ. What he's saying here is to share in Christ's sufferings, he's saying he is willing to endure suffering on behalf of Christ if the outcome is that he's going to be more conformed to the image of Christ. He's willing to endure sufferings if he knows what the outcome is going to be. And if the outcome is going to be worth it, that is, being conformed to the image of Christ, then he's willing to undergo the sufferings. See, we we read that and to say, why would Paul 
almost sounds so eager to share in sufferings. Is he a little crazy? Is he sort of this young, idealistic uh, guy who, who's, you know, has sort of a martyr complex and sort of glorifies the idea of suffering but really has no idea what it is? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, Paul knows all about what suffering is. He's been through much of it. Even now we remember he's writing this from prison. But remember, he is saying that he has a, a purpose for why he wants to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now the purpose is in verse 8. The purpose is in verse 8 where he says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Here's what's happened to Paul. He has had this glimpse of the surpassing worth of Christ. And because he has caught this glimpse of the worth of Christ, that has reoriented everything in his life to say that is the goal. To be conformed to Christ is the ultimate goal. If God would so ordain the path for me to get there will pass through sufferings. He says he is willing to share in sufferings if that will mean becoming like Christ. Now, it may sound odd, but, but think of people today. People, we can think of people today who are willing to endure suffering if it means achieving their goals, right? I mean, if you have financial or business goals and your ultimate goal is to achieve success in business, you know, people will be willing to make all sorts of sacrifices. They will suffer the loss of family. They will suffer the loss of free time. They will suffer the loss sometimes of their own health by devoting themselves to working 80 hours a week if only they may attain this goal of business or financial success. We know there are, are literally thousands of people in Los Angeles or New York or these world cities where people are willing to suffer in myriad ways if it just means the realization of their dream. That people move here to accomplish the goals they've had for a lifetime and more often than not they're willing to endure suffering if it will mean making a success of themselves. Some people are so committed to political causes that they're willing to go to jail in order to make a political point. They're willing to be hurt, to, to get in fights, if somehow it may mean for them making a, a point. People are always willing to suffer in order to accomplish their goals And what Paul is saying. He has a goal in mind that's infinitely more worthy than any of these things. His goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to be conformed to his death. And he says... If that will be accomplished, if I can do that, then he is willing to share in the fellowship of sufferings with Christ. How does that work? Well, here's the key to it. It's not the sufferings themselves that will lead Paul to be conformed to the image of the death of Christ. It's not suffering itself, but by suffering while Christ's power is at work in you, while the power of his resurrection through the Spirit is sanctifying those sufferings, sanctifying them to God's own purposes. That is, you're not just simply going through sufferings as though the experience itself made you more holy. But when God uses those purposes, when he uses that suffering and sanctifies it to his own ends, it does result in growth. See, we know confidently that for the believer in Christ, there is no suffering in your life that does not come from God. And that God never sends suffering into your life without a reason. He has a fatherly purpose of seeing his children grow to maturity. 
so that they will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And in order that he may accomplish that purpose, he knows what is best. He knows that sometimes the way to accomplish that purpose is by allowing his sufferings in our lives. And when it's suffering that come through the hand of God together with the power of the Spirit, sanctifying those sufferings in the life of the believer, then they do accomplish his purpose. Paul knew all sorts of sufferings. Paul knew all sorts of sufferings, imprisonment, floggings, beatings, hardships, privations of all sorts of kind, mental anguish. In fact, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want us to hear what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. He says, I'll start in verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Now, look at verse 8. This is interesting. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Here's the anguish and the suffering that Paul is going through so far burdened beyond their strength, they despaired of life itself. Indeed, this is verse 9, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but, now here's God's purpose in their suffering, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, here's what's happening. Paul is going through sufferings utterly burdened beyond their strength to endure, feeling like they were given over possibly even to death itself, But God had a purpose in that suffering, and he says it very specifically so that we can learn from it, right? He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of it. I want you to learn. The purpose was so that that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see that God had a purpose in Paul's suffering, sanctifying that to his own purpose, making him more like Christ, even through that anguish that they experienced on this particular trip that he's mentioning. A very specific moment in time, something goes wrong, they suffer, and Paul looks at it and says, God is teaching me a lesson through this. God is allowing this suffering to come into our lives at this particular moment, foiling these particular plans that we thought were good, because he has a greater good in mind. Conformity to the image of Christ. And that's what he's saying here, is that he doesn't mind that. He doesn't mind that. Well, Of course suffering is painful. That's why we call it suffering. But if by the help of God he's able to look beyond the pain that he's currently experiencing and by faith lay hold of the truth that God is a good heavenly father who loves his children and who will not allow them to suffer in vain and to say God has a purpose. The purpose is somehow to to make me not rely on myself. He has a purpose in using this difficulty and hardship in my life to wean my heart off the love of the things of this world, to keep me from placing my trust in things that will fail me, to teach me the lesson, how do I learn not to lean on my own understanding but to trust in the Lord with all my heart? How do I begin to separate my heart from the love of money or the love of respect or the love of ease or whatever idol it is that that tempts our hearts and that woos our hearts into trusting in them, God says, 
a little suffering can go a long ways in taking our hearts off of those idols and making us rely on God instead. How can he teach us greater dependence, greater humility, greater resolve not to put confidence in the flesh, greater contentment in saying no to the things of this world? Paul says, if I can learn those lessons being conformed to the image of Christ in these particular ways, then he is willing to share in the sufferings of Christ in order that he might become like him in his death becoming like him in his death in order that he might also be might also attain the resurrection of the dead he's willing to suffer for the sake of Christ not only is he willing to endure sufferings for the sake of Christ but he also says i press on i press on verse 12 not that i have already obtained all this which he says several times doesn't he in these verses not that i've already obtained all this there's a new humility here that only comes from the goodness of god in christ the grace of the gospel that paul can give this very realistic assessment of himself here there's no desire on paul's part to put himself forward i'm the apostle i have to be perfect i can't let them see that i still struggle that i still have weaknesses i can't let them see that i still struggle with temptation and sin there's none of that he simply says honestly and realistically not that i've already obtained this i'm not already perfect but but i press on we have it in verse 12 i press on to make it my own we have it in verse 13 forgetting what lies behind and striving forward to what lies ahead We have it in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul can give us this candid insight, this little peek into his life, saying he's not there yet, but he also shows us what he's striving for, what he is zealous for, that he is pressing on by all God's power, which is at work in him, to make progress in the Christian life to make progress in the growth in holiness, to see measurable, noticeable, discernible progress. I remember one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions when he was a young man was that he would make measurable, discernible progress in the Christian life. That he would be able to look back on the last year of life, maybe even on the last month of life, the last two weeks of life, and say, two weeks ago, I was not where I am now. I was struggling with this, and the Lord has helped me with it. Not that he can ever measure becoming perfect, but that he can see progress, that he would never be content with simply coasting in the Christian life, that he would never simply assume he was growing in his holiness without being able to look at particular ways, to be able to see real progress in mortifying particular sins, real progress in his knowledge of Christ, real progress in striving for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And in light of Paul's passion here, in light of his zeal to be like Christ, I want us to just stop and meditate on that for a moment. How many of us can earnestly say that we are zealously striving for holiness with this kind of earnestness? How many of us can say that our desire for godliness is the controlling factor in our lives? That that 
is a greater desire than our desire for riches, for success, for health. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, run in such a way as to get the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. How many of us can truly say that, that with Paul we are disciplining ourselves for holiness? That we are disciplining our tongues not to indulge in worthless talk? That we are disciplining our minds not to indulge in impure thoughts? That we are disciplining our hearts not to fall prey to the love of money? That we're actively taking steps with this same eagerness to press on to be conformed to the image of Christ, to forget what lies behind and to strive towards what lies ahead. I want us to think on these things, to listen to the word of God, living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. To let the Spirit press these verses on our hearts. To make new resolutions today, perhaps if we haven't had them before to, to renew our zeal for the pursuit of holiness. Perhaps to repent of the sin of apathy, of looking to other things, and to resolve to start anew. Jerry Bridges was one of my favorite Christian authors. and He died a week ago today, which caused me to reflect on what I had learned from him this week, to go back and reread some of the books that he had read that had had their greatest impact on me. One of them was a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. It was actually the very first Christian book I ever read when I was a freshman in college. The Pursuit of Holiness. One of the images he uses in that book is the difference between cruise control Christianity versus race car Christianity. He says what happens for many of us in our pursuit of holiness is that when we join a church, we sort of accelerate our holiness to the level of everyone else around us. We see where everyone else in the church is at and we sort of adjust our pursuit of holiness to match the, the speed around us and then we set the cruise control. And we just coast. And he said his great desire from meditating on the Bible was that he would never set the cruise control but that he would rather engage in race car Christianity with the pedal always to the floor always seeking to grow in new ways, always seeking to put new sins to death with intentionality, naming particular specific sins in his life and saying, this now is a place where I need to strive with greater zeal to be conformed to the image of Christ, to put this particular sin to death. He says the problem is that we gauge our understanding of holiness not from the Lord, but from the people around us. And so we have no true understanding of it. And he says, the reason that's so problematic is that it indicates we have not yet seen the surpassing worth of Christ the same way Paul has. Because when we see it, when we get that glimpse of the beauty of the worth of our Savior Jesus Christ, there will be no contentment with setting cruise control at a certain level of holiness. Because it's these glimpses of the grace of Jesus that, that motivate him 
Remember, the more he exalts in the grace of Christ, the more he meditates on it and writes on it, the more he's then motivated and and impelled to pursue holiness. The more he writes about grace, the more he writes about holiness. You see, Jerry Bridges also said that he thinks one of the the problems that he uh, encountered most often is, is that we don't have a great pursuit of holiness, and the reason is because we have a faulty understanding of the grace of God. He, he wrote that what he encountered most often was the more he talked about the grace of God, he often encountered this one particular misunderstanding, that people heard the word grace, and they simply took it to mean that God is willing to overlook sin. That it meant sin's not that big a deal because he's gracious. That somehow God was willing to sweep some of the little ones under the carpet, which was why he wrote one of his later books called Respectable Sins. And he says that's not at all what God's grace is. That's half of it because God, God's grace forgives sin. It forgives our sins through the sacrificial death of Jesus at the cross, but that same grace, it does not overlook sin, it forgives sin, and it renews our hearts now to seek the image of Christ. To seek the image of of Christ, that it renews us. That as Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God has appeared which teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's the grace of God that teaches us this, that causes us to say no to ungodliness. And so grace does not overlook sin. Grace doesn't say sin's not a big deal. Grace says sin is a very big deal, so big that Jesus had to die on the cross for it. But the beauty of that is that we are therefore forgiven. That we are forgiven, given a new heart, that we might now pursue holiness, that we might grow ever more in our ability to, in our desire rather, to know Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which comes through God, that we might know him in the power of his resurrection, all of this that we might say with Paul, I press on. I will not be content because I've seen the grace of Christ. And that motivates my heart to press on. There's a very uh, logical gospel order to what Paul says. The more he sees Christ, the more it gives him a zealous heart to pursue holiness, to pursue being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what the Christian life is. Continually growing in our understanding of Christ, in our knowledge of his mercy, in our self-understanding of the way his grace has been shown in our lives. And therefore, the more we know his grace, the more we pursue holiness. The more we pursue holiness, the more we see how badly we need his grace. That's the cycle of the Christian life. Grace leads to holiness, leads to grace. Let's pray together. Father, we read these words. Apart from the knowledge of Christ, our hearts would condemn ourselves for not having pursued holiness more zealously and more eagerly. But, Father, we cling to Christ. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to thy cross we cling. And with that confidence, with that knowledge, with that security, we pray that the Spirit will tenderly and patiently press these words on our heart. Continue your patient work in our lives, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.